Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kui. In this episode, I interview Dr. Arash Ariana who's a very well-known electrophysiologist in the area of cryotherapy. So we discuss all things cryotherapy, how cryotherapy is different from radio frequency, how it compares to pulse field ablation. And then we also talk about his ongoing study, the Medtronic Pivotal IDE study, which is investigating the use of cryotherapy for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Arash Ariana about cryotherapy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Our guest today is a distinguished electrophysiologist who completed his training at the MGH Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. He's not only been a prolific clinical EP, but also an EP scientist with nearly 100 peer-reviewed articles, and he's an absolute rock star in the space of cryotherapy for atrial fibrillation. He is the current principal investigator for the Pivotal IDE study, and we'll get into that in a little bit. And he's been practicing at the Mercy Medical Group in Sacramento, California since 2015 and is the current chair of cardiology and cardiovascular surgery at the Dignity Health and Vascular Institute at Mercy General Hospital. So I thought, who better to help us understand cryotherapy for atrial fibrillation? So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Arash Ariana. Thank you for this opportunity to be here. And thank you for your kind introduction. Sure. So let's just start off. So let's talk about cryo in its very fundamental terms. So why cryo? It's interesting. In surgery, we started with the cut and sew maze. And then actually, Dr. Cox will tell you, for four lesions in the, in the cut and sew maze, he used cryo. So talk to us about how did cryo start in the endocardial world in, in EP? Thanks for asking that question. So as you are correct in, in suggesting, radio frequency ablation has been essentially the, the main workhorse, the cornerstone of how AFib ablation uh, has been performed uh, over the years, and not just AFib, but also other uh, types of ablations. The one unique feature of the cryoballoon ablation is that it actually has a much larger footprint, as it turns out, in making lesions than old-fashioned radiofrequency ablation. In other words, um, in various studies, when compared head-to-head against a point-by-point uh, radiofrequency ablation, which is the nature of how radiofrequency ablation is performed, uh, using a delivery, and the such delivery system involves a focal catheter that delivers it in a point-by-point fashion. When we compare lesions, the lesions are sometimes as much as four times as wide when created with a cryo-balloon catheter. And that happens to be more of a unique feature, if you would, or a characteristic of that delivery system. In addition to that, there are also other advantages potentially associated with cryo versus RF, radiofrequency that is, and one of which being, as we've seen in various types of studies, that the safety associated with cryoablation in the left atrium appears to be better 
than that of radio frequency. For instance, there are a number of studies dating back to as far as 1990s and early 2000s demonstrating the safety of this, including, for instance, the reduced risk of a blood clot or thrombus formation inside the left atrium. There is a perceived benefit of a reduced uh, incidence of a fistula formation or, or stenosis of vasculature. One of the targets of AFib ablation, as you may know, is the vascular uh, system, the pulmonary venous vascular system, the pulmonary veins, that is. And pulmonary vein stenosis is something that is seldom seen with cryoablation, but can occur with radiofrequency as well. So there are certain uh, safety benefits, potentially. Having said that, there are other types of uh, unique features associated with cryoballoon ablation, which one has to be mindful of. For instance, it has a higher tendency sometimes to cause certain complications, such as phrenic nerve injury, the nerve that goes to the diaphragm. And so one has to be mindful of that. But overall, all in all, it has proven to be a bit better, easier workflow, streamlined better than radiofrequency in some ways. And it has also emerged as a better tool for making larger applications, especially in some areas like the posterior wall. Now, the posterior wall is something that I'm going to segue into later in the course of this discussion as well when we're talking about the pivotal IDE trial. But this is something that we've actually acquired and learned from you, the surgeons, that is, the cardiac surgeons. Over the years, we've known that the advantage of ablating the left atrial dome, as it's known as in the cardiac surgical realm, or what we call the posterior wall, so to speak, or the pulmonary venous component is another term for it, is a crucial part, a component of ablation of AFib. For sure, when ablating persistent and long-standing persistent AFib, but also probably it plays a role in other forms of AFib, perhaps even including proxismal. So the workflow is what really makes it such an attractive piece. So, I mean, as far as the usage of cryo, how, what percentage, just guesstimate, do you think EPs are using exclusively cryo versus cryo RF versus only RF? So, good question. Cryoballoon ablation was just approved six months ago as first-line therapy for the treatment of AFib, and it's the only modality currently approved as first-line therapy. So, I'm guessing probably the numbers have been rising and probably even on the rise as we speak. I don't have a good estimate on that. I would probably have to guesstimate and say something like about 30-40% of the cases are done with cryo, probably about 60-70% historically have been done with radiofrequency. That may have changed in the last year or two, and it may be changing as we speak. But a lot of times, uh, the need for using both cryo and radiofrequency uh, in conjunction to one another to achieve the endpoint that's desired. And something you had mentioned earlier, which I thought was interesting, you talked about how cryo is well-suited for pulmonary vein isolation because of the balloon, the size in order to create kind of the orifice and antral lesions. But then do you feel like as EPs take on more of the persistent, long-standing persistent populations that cryo will even be more popular? Because again, like, like you had said, it may be a better tool for posterior wall isolation or posterior vein component ablation? Yeah, certainly there seems to be an increased adoption of it, a widespread adoption and growing as we speak. But to be also fair and frank, there was also uh, there are other advantages to other modalities that are on the horizon. For instance, pulse field ablation, as you uh, sure. are well familiar with. So time will tell as we evolve and the technologies and tools that evolve with us whether cryo will uh, will continue on that trajectory. But so far, I think it's fair to say that the utilization of cryo for treatment of persistent AFib and creating large lesions has definitely grown and will continue probably to grow until other modalities like a PFA or pulse field ablation take a stronghold in that space. Absolutely. And so I was going to ask you about that. As far as combining PFA with cryo, do you see any limitations in that space? Would that be something that would be staged? Can you shed some thoughts on that for us? 
So one of the advantages potentially of PFA or pulse feed ablation is that it does not have certain safety issues that are associated with radiofrequency and cryo. For instance, as we said, phrenic nerve injuries uh, is more commonly seen with cryo balloon ablation historically. And also esophageal complications are something that we fear the most, and they can both be encountered by both cryo and radiofrequency. Some might say their incidence may be lower with cryo. It's never been proven. But we do believe that PFA or pulse field ablation or electroporation essentially is probably at least as a higher threshold for causing such complications. Uh, perhaps even some have claimed uh, that it's really difficult to do that altogether with this modality. So time will tell, but I think as time evolves, our technologies are going to get safer and probably more efficacious as we go as well. Right. Something that you had mentioned in a great article, I just want to make the um, listeners aware of it's it's entitled Rationale and Outcomes of Cryoballoon Ablation for the Left Posterior Wall in Conjunction with Pulmonary Vein Isolation. This was actually published in the Journal of Innovations in Cardiorhythm Management just earlier this year in 2021. Something that you had mentioned in there that really caught my eye was this idea of myofibril heterogeneity in the posterior wall. And at our center, we perform a lot of hybrid, if you will, ablation approaches. Do you think that would lend itself more to a hybrid approach with the cryoendocardial and then maybe an RF epicardial? I think the hybrid approach is certainly an attractive approach. There's no argument about it. There are potential advantages. For instance, the surgeons like yourself can tackle the posterior wall as the electrophysiologist perhaps can go through and mop up what hasn't maybe been completely ablated or to additionally target other sites, let's say the cable tricuspid isthmus or, or basic pulmonary vein ablations or so on. So I think there is certainly at many experienced centers like yours, there's a valuable rule rationale for doing it that way. In fact, one has argued, in fact, one could argue that there's even data that suggests there are perhaps epicardial myofibrils on the posterior wall. We've done some studies at our site to demonstrate that again, using the cryo balloon, we probably can create durable long-term lesions that are transmural because that part of the posterior wall is not that thick as you'd agree, I'm sure. It's only about a couple of millimeters thickness. But nonetheless, I think having that extra sort of uh, support and, and ability to ablate it epicardially lends more success to it, I think. Another area that you know a lot of us in, in the field are quite excited about is the left atrial appendage, whether it's epicardial closure with Laos, endocardial closure with with amulet or watchman. There's also these conversations that are happening about intentional left atrial appendage isolation, whether it's with PFA, whether it's with RF. Can you talk to us about how cryo fits in that space with left atrial appendage isolation? It's a great question. I think this is one of those areas where we have some conflicting data, to be honest. There are several studies that have shown potentially beneficial outcomes associated with isolation of the left atrial appendage. The most recent study, um, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, is called the AMAZE trial. Right. That specifically looked at the ligation of the left atrial appendage epicardially by silencing and essentially ligating the appendage. Essentially, the idea was to see if we can see beneficial incremental benefits to AFib ablation outcomes. And there wasn't any. It really didn't add any, anything further to that. So there are some conflicting data out on this. If you've seen some of the work that we published, the only advocacy that I've had on this is I've set up in the past, if we're going to be closing the appendage, let's say, in a manner where we're going to be deploying, let's say, a watchman or an amulet or an endocardial occlusion device in these patients, and we are ablating them, 
I think it's not a bad idea to isolate the appendage empirically in that patient population, purely because if there are any arrhythmias that arise from that structure, once you put a device into it, it becomes extremely difficult to, to ablate that. We recently performed a procedure in the process of publishing it, um, where we actually had to go epicardially, to your point, to ablate it because endocardially there was a device occupying that space, so to speak. So we ended up taking the route of going through the coronary sinus and distally ablating it epicardially. Now we happen to be a little bit lucky in this case where the vein branchology, so to speak, or branches of the coronary sinus were conducive to that. But if that wasn't the case, then we'd be relying on having to do surgery, open heart, or other types of uh, strategies. So I think that's the only time when I empirically isolate the appendage on a regular basis. The data to me has not been compelling enough to argue ablating or isolating or closing the appendage on a case on a routine basis. Of course, there is always the benefit of stroke risk reduction with closing the appendage, which is undeniable. That's the only reason why I would want to maybe close it on a regular basis if I gotcha. applied. Sure. Another hot area is the vein of Marshall, ligament of Marshall. We know that there's ethanol. We know you can divide it epicardially. What about the application of cryo for the ligament or the vein of Marshall? It's a great question. So obviously, epicardially, the coronary sinus is not large enough to most times accommodate a coronary a cryobolid inside of the structure. Having said that, we're also about to publish our experience with inserting the cryobolid into the coronary sinus and okay. ablating it in large dilated coronary sinuses, especially in patients who have persistent left SVCs, it becomes quite feasible. Sure. But uh, certainly ablating the vein of Marshall, uh, that's not going to work with the cryobolid. So you'd have to resort to alcohol septal ablation if you believe in that strategy. There's a complaint data, again, out of several labs. Miguel Valdrabano, as you know, among others, I have shown some benefit to this. And there's currently an ongoing study to specifically look at this in a prospective manner as an adjunct to your standard uh, posture wall and, and pulmonary vein isolation by my colleague, Luigi DiBiase, and his team and colleagues who are working with him to look at this. So I think there'll be more exciting data that's going to emerge in the next couple of years on this topic, and we'll find out if there's benefit to it or or is it, again, just could be like, for instance, routine appendage ligation, as we saw with the AMAZE trial that didn't necessarily pan out? Okay, perfect. Well, I'm sure we're all going to be looking forward to those results. As a surgeon who likes to perform AFib surgery, unfortunately, I know I'm not 100% at it, right? I try my best. I put all the lesions where I'm supposed to. I do them for as long as I'm supposed to. But inevitably, there's going to be some failures. Can you talk about what you've seen as an EP, as an EP colleague, when you see surgical failures, where are those failures and how do you treat those with cryo? It's a great question. I think the most important thing to point out is uh, you want to pick a cardiac surgeon who's experienced at it, somebody like yourself, somebody who does a lot of it. Individuals who sort of dabble in this are the ones who are going to invariably have uh, challenging results and poor outcomes, to be honest. And what we found is individuals who are regular at this, doing it on a regular basis like you are, get good results. And uh, having said that, all of us can be challenged by not being able to sometimes ablate parts of the posterior wall to achieve complete contiguous lesion sets on the posterior wall. And we, as, as you said, have the ability to map as we're performing the procedure so we can see it in real time and be able to adjust the dosing application and additional applications as needed necessary to complete the job. But that's where we tend to see a lot of times the posture wall not being completely silent when it comes out of surgery. Surgeons like yourself who do a lot of it do a fantastic job of the pulmonary veins, as you indicated, also other additional spots, like for instance, the, the vein of Marshall, the vein of Marshall, and closing the appendage is a big 
add-on benefit, which many patients enjoy. Many of them can't tolerate blood thinners or for a variety of reasons are not good candidates for it. And, and this obviates the need for taking long-term blood thinners. We routinely, again, don't do that in conjunction to our ablations. That becomes a, a limitation of our procedure as compared to yours. So generally speaking, would you say as, as surgeons, we should maybe focus more on floor lesion, if you will, that posterior wall floor lesion between the inferior pulmonary veins? You think that's, that's maybe our weak spot? You know, to be honest, I've seen a, sort of a medley of outcomes. Uh, <laughs> okay. that, you know, in some cases, I've seen the poster wall in the middle part, the mid portion not being completely isolated. Other places, other individuals uh, I've seen maybe the lower part. So I think it's sort of like electrophysiologists as well have maybe certain, uh, maybe say weaknesses, if you want to call it that or whatnot, or rash strategies that are maybe slightly different. But that is probably a common location, as is also with electrophysiologists who perform uh, poster wall isolation. For us, the the limitation happens to be the esophagus and the line of fire, and that happens to be in the middle of the poster wall sometimes. And we tend to go lighter a little bit there, and there happens to be the site of reconnection as well. So I think you guys are not unique in it, but certainly I think if you emphasize more applications there, it would probably uh, lend to more uh, efficacy in that region, I guess I would say. Gotcha. Since we're talking about the posterior wall, why don't we jump right into your study? Obviously, you're the principal investigator of the pivotal IDE study. Can you talk to us about kind of the why this study is so important to do right now? Well, thank you for that. Yeah, so it's, it is called the pivotal IDE trial. It's, it's a prospective randomized multicenter multinational IDE trial. And one of the uh, things that we're sort of proud about it is that it's, it's designed in such a way that it uh, hopefully will answer the question in a very scientific manner. It's really a double-blinded study. And you might say, how could it be double-blinded if you're the operator and you know right. what arm the patients uh, allocated it? So the reason why it's double-blinded is because we, during the course of the study, we will randomize patients to PVI versus PVI with posterior wall isolation. And the randomization piece to posterior wall ablation will not be assigned until the pulmonary vein isolation part has been completed. So once the patient has been put through or subjected to pulmonary vein isolation, and that part of the procedure has been completed, then the operator is made aware of whether the patient is randomized to PVI only or PVI with posterior wall. And we think it's a very scientific sort of a design, if you would, of a study as the studies go to answer this sort of million dollar question, or is the posterior wall really a valuable over and beyond the PVI piece that has been shown to be the cornerstone of AFib ablation therapy. The good news is a number of other retrospective and smaller scale perspective studies have shown the posterior wall to be the of benefit, but this is a multi-center, larger scale, multinational study that will hopefully shed light on this once and for all for us. When I was reading through the actual uh, parameters of the study, I found it very brave to include seven to 14 day ambulatory monitoring. We all typically go by this HRS definition of 24-hour halter, less than 30 seconds, no antiarrhythmic drugs. I thought that was pretty uh, courageous. Can you tell us a little bit more about why, why you chose to even have more scrutiny on the rhythm success of this procedure? The better the monitoring, the, the more likelihood of uh, actually capturing some arrhythmias that are meaningful in this case. And I do think that uh, there is potentially bias in this, that uh, the poster wall does play a role. And I think a lot of it really does come down to monitoring. One of the thing, uh, limitations of, for instance, a lot of the proxismal AF studies is that the studies are challenged by the type of follow-up that is associated with them. People have said, in fact, over the years, that if you look at the trend and the outcomes of uh, many of the proxismal AF studies, uh, they're sort of all about the same, regardless of whatever strategy or procedure is being performed. And people have, all, in fact, raised the concern that could that just simply be a reflection of our ability to identify AFib recurrence more so than actually assessing the results of the outcome of, of the treatment strategy. 
So we, we tried our best to be as, as pure as we could to really look for as much arrhythmia, as many arrhythmia episodes as we could, short of uh, having to force operators to implant loop recorders, which is really the, uh, the holy grail. If, if you really ask me, that's really the ideal way of assessing the outcomes of two strategies that are being compared head to head. Since we didn't have the, the luxury of being able to do that, we, we pushed the envelope by asking folks to do the, the longer term monitoring. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So where are you with enrollment now? When do you think you'll be finished? And when when can we get these great results? So we recently started to enroll a number of patients. I think we've so far enrolled seven or eight patients, I want to say. Basically, the goal is to enroll 366 patients. We have uh, two interim analyses. So we'll see what they bring. And if we need to actually go to all the way to completion of 366 patients to get the results uh, that we need to see. But at this point, we have about 14 sites that are going to be coming on online and getting started in the very, at various stages of their enrollment as we speak. So we're hoping in the next two or three months, we'll be really revved up, ramped up, being able to start cranking at a number of patients. We were hoping uh, that this is going to be completed within a couple of years time from the onset of enrollment at our site, which, was, which took place a couple of months ago. It's fantastic. I'm sure you're aware, but just for the listeners also, there's a parallel surgical study going on called the cryo-ice study. So, you know, everyone's very interested in cryo right now and seeing if these cryo lesions, not just the lesions themselves, but the energy source also works better than the other modalities we have available to us right now. So gosh, well, that was a quick shot, fascinating kind of review of cryo. Is, is there anything else you'd like to impart to the listeners about specifically maybe your technique since you've done so much of this or, or anything else that somebody should know about cryoablation? Cryoablation is a, a tool like any other. And I think if you're comfortable doing good work with uh, be it radio frequency ablation or laser balloon or whatever the modality of uh, choice that may be, I think at the end of the day, it's just another tool. We've happened to uh, sort of uh, get comfortable with this particular technique and strategy that we've adopted, and it seems to work well for us. I really have nothing against using other strategies. And along the same lines, I still, as we said earlier before, I think there is potentially a role at many centers for hybrid strategies, which could incorporate either cryo or RF to achieve the, the most successful outcome for, for, for our patients. Well, that's fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on here. I know you're super busy clinically. Dr. Ariani, it was an absolute pleasure. Pleasure was mine. Thank you for your time and for listening. Thank you. Thanks again. Have a good afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com. And check out our Twitter feed at All Things AFib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.